0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're going to be talking about something
0: that, that I've been thinking about doing an episode on for a while, ever since I, I read an article a while back that really interested me. And that is the surprising and kind of counterintuitive link uh, that has been proposed by many geologists now between life as we know it on Earth and the fires of Mount Doom, specifically the the most uh, violent and scary of geologic processes like volcanic eruptions and the movement of tectonic plates.
1: Yeah, this is a great topic to get into. We kind of had a I, I guess a, a preamble to this just uh, a couple episodes ago when we were talking about eggs and we talked about the uh, volcano birds uh, mm-hmm. and the idea of a volcano being all uh, seeming um, you know, almost paradoxically to be something that can nourish life uh, as opposed to something that's just a purely destructive force.
0: Oh, I didn't think about that comparison at all. But yeah, the, the way that the volcanic sand uh, babysits the egg for the for the megapode so that it can just run off and do its own thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Raised by a volcano. (laughs) Um, But so I thought a great place to start here might be with a brief reading from the Voluspa. It is a famous Old Norse epic poem from the collection that is known as the Poetic Edda. Now, this is, a, this is an anonymous work. The author is unknown. But the Voluspa tells the story of the Norse gods culminating in their destruction in the fiery doom of Ragnarok. And uh, I'm just going to read a couple of uh, quatrains here. In anger smites the warder of the earth, forth from their homes must all men flee, nine paces fares the son of Fjorgan, and, slain by the serpent, fearless he sinks, the sun turns black, earth sinks in the sea, the hot stars down from heaven are whirled, fierce grows the steam, and the life feeding flame, Till fire leaps high about heaven itself. Nice. And one fun thing about this poem, it's a bit of Tolkien trivia. Robert, tell me if you've heard this before, but the name of the wizard Gandalf that first appeared in in Tolkien's The Hobbit, and then of course is like the best character in Lord of the Rings, the name of Gandalf comes from the Voluspa. Uh, Tolkien actually borrowed the name from a section known as the Tally of the Dwarves from this epic Mm. poem. Originally, he was going to apply it to the character in The Hobbit who became Thorin Oakenshield, the leader of the dwarves. Dwarf party but then he decided later on that it made more sense to apply the name of Gandalf to the wizard I think because Gandalf means something like magic staff elf and I think he (laughs) made the right choice like Gandalf that makes more sense for the wizard than for Thorin I think so But a cool thing that happens in this poem is sort of part of the Ragnarok myth is that there is a rebirth that follows this fiery doom. You know, after the fire leaps high to heaven and the kingdom of the gods is destroyed, earth is not just left in cinders. Instead, there is a renewal from the fire. And the author writes, Now do I see the earth anew, rise all green from the waves again. The cataracts fall and the eagle flies, and fish he catches beneath the cliffs. So there's this great link between fiery cataclysm and rebirth and renewal of life in Norse mythology, and and of course, they you know these are symbolic elements. I'm not suggesting that they had some kind of scientific insight with this. It's, it's just something you know that I think is taken as a metaphor, largely about human life itself. But coincidentally, it ends up kind of ringing true with things we're finding out about geology and nature.
1: Well, it's something you see in a lot of different uh, mythological cycles, right? I mean, you see it in, uh, in, in, in Hindu mythology. You see mm-hmm. it in uh, uh, various um, uh, American uh, mythologies, uh, you know, thinking about uh, Meso and South America uh, in particular. is this idea that things will rise, things will fall, uh, that there will be cataclysm, uh, that whole worlds will be destroyed, but new worlds will rise out of them and have risen out of them before. Yeah, I was thinking about themes of fiery
0: eruption and the greening of the earth together, or sort of a creator-destroyer duality. One that came to my mind that uh, that I thought you might know something about, because I know I've heard you talk about Hawaiian mythology before, was the Pele myth.
1: Yeah, yeah, the Hawaiian goddess Pele is an interesting example, a, a deity of fire and volcanism. I was reading a book titled uh, Pele, Volcano Goddess of Hawaii by H.R. Low Nemo. And he points out that when Polynesian Voyagers first arrived in Hawaii, they would have brought their gods with them. Now, now we don't know where in the Hawaiian Islands this would have specifically been, which of the islands they would have landed on and and where, and even when remains a topic of debate. I've seen dates ranging from 300 CE to 1,000 CE, and of course, contact with Europeans didn't occur until 1778. But the newcomers would have arrived on sailing technology in keeping with that of the larger Polynesian expansion, as well as related cultural inventions such as gods and goddesses, all of which would then evolve into distinctly Hawaiian models afterwards. hmm. Now, as we discussed in the show before, the Polynesians were, were some of the last true explorers of the uh, inhuman regions of the Earth. And their saga, which is full of fascinating history, is, is it's not unlike what we might expect of a space-faring civilization with time and space sufficient enough to see the splintering and continued evolution of societies from region to region uh, as uh, they spread out across these far-flung uh, habitable spaces. Now, Nemo points out that the first Hawaiians brought with them Cain, Kanaloa, uh, Ku Lono, uh, gods known throughout the South Pacific, but they also brought with them what was apparently a minor fire deity named Pele. And they didn't bring any volcano deities with them, uh, but but she was this fire deity that seemed to pre-exist. And she likely remained insignificant for a while there at first, just another minor deity like she was previously. But then eventually, uh, the the Hawaiian Islands shook, and the volcanic mountains, of which six are active today, belched forth fire, magma, and ash. And this is what uh, Nemo writes... Quote, this minor deity was apparently transferred to the volcanoes and became the goddess Pele who was destined to hold a powerful position in the Hawaiian pantheon. The great volcanoes became her home, their power, her strength, their beauty and destruction, her manifestation, and their unpredictability, her temperament.
0: Now, Pele would not be the only god or goddess from a pantheon in the world that's associated with with specific volcanic activity, but I would imagine that... Uh, that a volcano god takes on a very special significance when you are an island culture, so when you 're like geographically bound very close amidst a vast ocean to that that ground forming and life giving volcano
1: yeah I, I something to think about here is that we we see other gods, particularly um gods in the uh, the Greek and Roman cycle. That are associated with with fire and also associated with volcanoes, but also associated with the forge, and the forging of things. Um, we also see this in Lord of the Rings with with Sauron, is is essentially a Hephaestus type character, right? But as we discussed previously on the show in one of our armor episodes. Uh, you certainly don't see metal work uh, uh, occurring on the Hawaiian Islands I mean you don't see see iron there for the, the taking and the manipulation they were using uh, wood and fiber and um, shark tooth based technology and, do, and using so excellently uh, but I wonder how much of it too has to do with the fact that that Pele would have been removed from that there would have been, been no human forge to overshadow the, the natural cycles of, of fire in the earth you know and on top of that here is the volcano itself here are the volcanoes in these volcanic islands where uh where its uh its activity its uh its uh its geologic life is so obvious yeah Now, Nemo spends much of this book discussing the ways that Pele is viewed and certainly drives home that that she's not a a monolith. Traditions and ideas regarding Pele range from religious belief and cultural identity to the abstract, uh, the environmental, and even uh, there are these um, numerous examples of supernatural sightings in which one uh, claims to have seen or believes to have seen a beautiful woman standing in the fire. But there certainly is this recurring theme of one who creates with volcanic fire and may also take back via the same power um, of a, quote, traditional spiritual respect for the life forms her creation supports. Uh, For instance, in in the book, Nemo does bring up a specific example uh, talking with uh, someone who'd lost uh, uh, some property due to a volcanic eruption. And they ask him, well, how does this change the way you think about Pele? And they say, well, it, it doesn't. Pele gave this to me. She created the land, and I was just using it, and now she has taken it back. Yeah, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Yeah. Now, the, the Lord that people are usually talking about uh, when they when they say that is the uh, is the the God of um, of uh, of uh, Judeo Christian tradition, right? Uh, which brings up this question, Joe. You're more of a, an Old Testament uh, kind of guy than I am, uh, but ha- so have you ever run across this argument that Yahweh uh, in Hebraic tradition may have started off as a volcano god? Yeah, I was reading a bit about this. Um, this seems like one of those things that
0: you. It, it's kind of an interesting idea. You can't totally rule it out, but it seems highly speculative and based on kind of scanty evidence. So So I would say it's one of those things that is possible, but probably not. It, I think it's mainly based on ideas about geography, like the idea that uh, you know that Sinai, Mount Sinai would have had some kind of volcanic element in the past and then mm-hmm. referring to specific passages in the Bible. Which described the Lord in terms that people say, well, maybe this could be describing a volcanic uh, eruption or something. And it's one of those things that you can often do with these (laughs) geomythology. This actually, I guess, would be technically geomythology, a geomythology inference. And so I'd say for this one, you know, it's not impossible, but it's kind of a reach. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think I'd, I'd run across it myself, but uh, I, I saw mention of it, and it, one of the sources that was often uh, that were often was often cited here was uh, a book by Jack Miles titled God, a Biography, <laughs> uh, which is a popular work that um, seems to discuss this. So I looked it up, and it's in re- reference to uh, Exodus uh, 40, 33 through 38. Uh, he writes, quote, Nothing in nature looks like a cloud by day and a fire by night except a volcano. The depth of the Lord God's compelling but contradictory power is well evoked by the extraordinary image of a volcano brought into a tent. <laughs> now, um, speaking of volcanoes and gods and getting back to uh, to Tolkien, mm-hmm. uh, now, I, I've, I've expressed in the show before that I love a good journal paper that, that digs into some Tolkien that tries to find the science of Middle Earth. Uh, we've talked about that previously with uh, The Hobbit, uh, you know, the, uh, well, how many meals does a hobbit need a day and would they be able to, <laughs> right, to yeah. uh, march across the Earth? Um uh, Also, we got into the metallurgy of the One Ring. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, so I was like, well, somebody, somebody has to have considered Mount Doom and, um, and you know, the, the geology of uh, Middle Earth. And sure enough, uh, I found a paper titled The Geology of Middle Earth by William Anthony uh, Swinton Sargent, published in the journal MythLore in 1996. Now, I, I know MythLore doesn't have a, a resounding ring of uh, geologic authority to it, but uh, I looked up a sergeant who lived uh, 1935 through 2002, and he was a professor professor of geology at the University of Saskatchewan and he also apparently wrote a series of fantasy novels himself the perilous quest for lioness uh, I looked it up, I've not read it, but I noticed you can get at least the first two books in the trilogy on Kindle and paperbacks. So
0: Amazing. Okay. So he's the perfect person to write this, a fantasy novelist and and clear geek who is also a professor of geology.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, he, he wasn't the first, though. Uh, so he when he dives into this, he ends up citing an earlier paper by Robert C. Reynolds titled The Geomorphology of Middle Earth, which is published in uh, The Swansea Geographer in 1974. Mm-hmm. So basically what Reynolds had done is he had applied the concept of plate tectonics to the entire geography of Middle Earth, recognizing four different plates. The uh, Iridor plate in the west, the uh, Rovanian plate in the north, and the Harad and Mordor plates in the south. And Sargent then used this as his starting point, kind of his bedrock, uh, but updated it to reflect changes in plate tectonic theory between 1974 and 1996.
0: Oh, yeah, that's interesting, because I would say at the time The Hobbit was written, plate tectonics was not yet an accepted scientific theory.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's easy to, to overlook that, especially for those of us who, who've grown up in the wake of that and have you know just encountered it in our science books at a very early age.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things that just feels like people must have known this for hundreds of years. But yeah,
1: the, the, the widespread acceptance of plate tectonics is fairly recent. Here's a quote from, uh, from that paper by Sargent. Quote, Mount Doom is indeed one of four isolated volcanoes, each representing a hot spot at some distance from a plate margin, and all of them associated with evil doing: Dol Guldar in Mirkwood, Orthanc in Isengard, and Erebor, the Lonely Mountain. So he contended that Isengard was a volcanic crater with central uh, orthanic itself carved via technology and magic from a column of solidified lava thrust up from the vent in its last eruption. The Lonely Mountain, which is ever shrouded in gray and silent clouds, is another, and he he argues that Smog's chamber is just a reshaped lava tube. Uh, But Mount Doom he underlines, is the only volcano that seems to be truly active in the time of Bilbo and Frodo. And the only recorded seismic events in the books occur uh, first when Gandalf casts down the Balrog, and then when Gollum falls into the fires of Mount Doom with the One Ring. Uh, So ultimately, he says, for a world uh, in which all the major events are revolving around activities at a single active volcano, Middle Earth is is rather seismically calm while still being, quote, geologically like our own world. (laughs) Well, I got to say, I do not know what natural
0: processes could create that perfect rectangle of mountains around Mordor. That seems impossible (laughs) to me. I always looked at that map and said, ah, that's just, that doesn't look like real earth. You got to make the outline a little more jagged. I understand surrounded by mountains, but come on, look at those corners.
1: Uh, This is one of the things I really liked about uh, about R. Scott Baker's work, where he his fantasy work takes place in this world of the three seas that is very much uh, middle earth that's been you know uh, transformed via these various philosophical ideas and a lot of uh, you know the crusades interjected in there and some other influences but there is a mordor like location in the books with a central fortress and then mountains surrounding it but uh, in in his books this is a, a essentially an impact crater uh, mm-hmm. created by this thing from space or beyond that has come to the earth and that is the central uh, uh, uh fortress in the middle of this uh this this vast crater and so the mountains encircling it are those that were cast up by that impact a plus very plausible <laughs> i i like it so anyway there's there's some just additional token to just really uh, kick things off here but um uh, again, I would say that, that Sauron uh, certainly is can more connected to those, uh, those gods such as Hephaestus, uh, Adranus, and Vulcanus. Uh, they are all smiths in the human sense, all creators uh, through technology rather than through the nature that seems to be their key metaphor here, the volcano. Well, to bring it back into the real world and, and look at this duality
0: of uh, you know the same entity that might be both responsible for the creating and sustaining of life, but then also fiery destruction and, and, and explosive calamity, uh, I, I want to start by asking a question that we talk about on the show a good bit. And that question is – When you're looking at other planets, you stare out of the night sky, and and you're trying to find examples of other planets that might be able to sustain life, what are the conditions you would check for? Uh, I think the most obvious is liquid water, right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, water is the thing that, uh, that more than just about anything else, we just can't remove from the equation and get to life as we know it. Yeah, and that's one of the things we talked about when we discussed Brian Greene's book uh, the Until the End of
0: Time. He has this great section where he connects the chemical properties of water to its role in the evolution of life. You know, it uh, the, the great power of water as this polar molecule and as a solvent as a sort of three-dimensional canvas for the drafting of the structure of cells, allowing for energy to be processed and harnessed for replication. Uh, and of course, all of these virtues depend on water being in its liquid state. Water in its frozen or vapor state is not really useful for the evolution of life. But in addition to just looking for the direct presence of liquid water, there are other conditions you might be able to look for that could, at least in theory, make a planet more hospitable to the origin, evolution, and maintenance of life, at at least in theory. And you might not expect it, but volcanic eruptions and the plate tectonics that volcanic eruptions might signal are another one of those conditions. So maybe we should take a break and then talk about that when we get back.
1: All right, we're back. So uh, the idea we're discussing here is the idea that that, the, that just as Pele is not uh, merely a destroyer but is also a creator, uh, volcanoes and the underlying plate tectonics that they represent might also be key to life.
0: Yeah, and so I want to talk about an article that I was reading by a researcher named Craig O'Neill. So O'Neill is a director of the Macquarie Planetary Research Center, and he's a, an associate professor of geodynamics at Macquarie University. And he's done some direct research on, on simulating the uh, the evolution of heating models and ge- you know he- thermodynamics within planets or geodynamics. And so he starts off by talking about how the, you know there are two things that make Earth unique in the solar system. You might think because of the conversation we were just having a minute ago that one of them is liquid water, but actually no. There are other objects in the solar system that have liquid water. Uh, sometimes people bring up the example of Mars. I think that's still an open question. Of course, Mars doesn't have lakes or rivers. There's some indication that it may have transient liquid water here and there on occasion such as in uh, these features called recurring slope lineae, though I think I was reading a report that there is spectral analysis that has disputed the interpretation of these sort of dark spots that appear on slopes as as actual water. I guess we don't know for sure what they are. But um, there, there are other examples that are more straightforward, like it is totally scientific consensus at this point that Jupiter's moon Europa has liquid water under its icy surface. It's got the shell of ice on the outside. Underneath that, it's got some oceans. They're sloshing around. They're having a good time. Who knows what's happening there? But there is also possibly subsurface water on Ganymede and on Enceladus. So the two features that O'Neill singles out uh, that actually make Earth unique within the solar system are that Earth has plate tectonics and that Earth has life. And the question that he's raising is whether these two unique features are actually causally related, if it's not a coincidence that Earth's crust breaks apart into plates that shift around and move over its surface, that float on top of the mantle, uh, that sort of spread apart in in some places and then subduct and move down and get sucked back into the mantle in other places... Does that process contribute to the creation and sustaining of life?
1: Yeah, this is an interesting idea because it basically comes down to the, the, the question of, of, of whether a geologically active planet is necessary for life. Like if there's, some, if there's something in this, uh, this continued geologic life that makes biological life more possible.
0: Right. And I guess there are ways that a planet could be geologically active, but not have plate tectonics. Like uh, I'm going to get to this in more detail in a bit, but there are models of planets where there are not plates on the surface, where the surface is basically just one single spherical hard crust sitting on top of the mantle. But it can still have volcanic eruptions that could, in some ways, regulate the heating of the planet and control its atmosphere in a way that, uh, that could sustain life, according to some researchers. But, uh, but we'll get into more detail about that in a minute. So, we know that one of the prerequisites for the evolution and survival of life as we know it is liquid water. But why is it that Earth has maintained the conditions necessary for liquid water – basically the entire time it's existed. Ever since we've had liquid water, there has been the ability for water to stay liquid. It's been long enough to allow life to continue evolving the entire time Earth has existed. So how is it possible that Earth has been able to maintain these habitable conditions in an almost adaptive and almost kind of uh, accommodating kind of way, right? like uh, Especially since the external conditions have changed. Like the sun has grown 30% brighter over the same period of time. So the the heat inputs on Earth have gotten much greater. And yet still the the atmospheric climate of Earth has stayed relatively stable. And O'Neill offers the answer that what's going on here to keep Earth relatively stable is uh, is the profile of its geological activity, primarily its plate tectonics. So first of all, You've got the idea that when you have plate tectonics, you tend to create volcanoes at the edges of tectonic plates. And when volcanoes erupt, they release stuff from the earth. Stuff from the mantle comes up and is released up into the atmosphere. Probably the most important things that get released here are carbon dioxide and water vapor.
1: Now, this this is a great point that we sometimes lose track of, perhaps, when we think about volcanic eruptions and they're more uh, destructive um, Aspects, the idea that uh, that you could have, um, and you do have examples of, of terrific volcanic eruptions um, blocking out the sun, <laughs> uh, right. essentially um, forming a kind of a nuclear winter type effect, uh, sometimes on a, on the scale of an entire planet.
0: Right. I mean, so that that could be the case if. Particles get ejected up into mm. the atmosphere that uh, that shield the Earth from the sun's rays, and that can create a cooling effect. But over the long term, what they're what they're releasing is greenhouse gases, which mm. uh, which even though there may be particles that block out sunlight and cool the Earth at a shorter term, on a longer term, they are the volcanoes are polluting the atmosphere with CO two <laughs> and <laughs> with water vapor that trap heat down in the atmosphere. So that works to help keep the atmosphere warm, but then there are processes of plate tectonics that work in the opposite direction, too. Uh, The natural process of plate tectonics, it not only releases these materials into the atmosphere, it also cycles them deep back into the belly of the Earth. Now, the question would be, well, why is that important? Well, obviously, if you just keep pouring more and more greenhouse gases like CO2 into the atmosphere the earth could end up like Venus. You know, it could end up with Mm -hmm. so much trapped heat that the surface boils and there's no liquid water and thus no life. So how does earth deal with the extra carbon dioxide that gets released from volcanoes? Well, as the tectonic plates of Earth slide around on the surface, there are sites where those plates get sucked back under the crust and into the mantle. The Mariana Trench is one example of a location where the, where the plates are gobbled up by the Earth. And as these plates get sucked in, they take substances with them. They take water, they take a carbonate or carbonic acid, which is the mineral form of carbon dioxide. So the process is essentially taking CO2 back out of the atmosphere and sucking it down deep into the earth.
1: By the way, uh, speaking of, of Venus, uh, should, should uh, drive home that, that Venus uh, is apparently lacking in plate tectonics. Oh, yes. And, and, but for a long time, scientists uh, didn't uh, think there would be any kind of uh, volcanic activity. But according to uh, a Reuters report that came out uh, just uh, this month, scientists have identified 37 volcanic structures on Venus that appear to be recently active.
0: Hmm. Well, I didn't know that, but that is an interesting indicator, and and we can talk about more examples throughout the solar system as we go on, that it is totally possible to have volcanoes without having plate tectonics, though Mm -hmm. if you look at a map – volcanoes on earth's surface some volcanoes just appear at random you know they might be in the middle of a plate just some mantle hot spot somewhere but right. most of the earth's volcanoes they line up right along those lines at the boundaries of uh, of plates so for example the the western coast of the americas the whole ring of fire you know around the edge of the pacific ocean plate is where a ton of the earth's volcanoes are but there's another interesting feature of plate tectonics that uh, that r- helps remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and that is mountains. I had mm. never thought about this before, but I, I read about this in a couple of articles in O'Neill's and another one I'm going to mention in just a minute. So the process goes like this. As Plates move around on the surface of the Earth. They're floating over the mantle. They smash into each other, and they bunch up where they get smashed. So as they smash into each other over the millennia, they raise up the bedrock at their impact points, and one, one plate pushes the other up. And as the rock is raised up, it forms mountain peaks of exposed mineral bedrock. And O'Neill points out that mountains are one of Earth's major CO2 sinks. It's a place where CO2 from the atmosphere can be removed and stored in a stable form. Uh, Of course, another example that we could think about would be trees and plants. Remember that the, the flesh of a plant is made out of carbon compounds that are built out of CO2 that gets sucked out of the atmosphere and fused into carbohydrates using the energy from the sun. This is what photosynthesis is. So as plants build their bodies, they suck CO2 out of the sky, but mountains also suck CO2 out of the sky, but in a different way, they suck it out through weathering. So as uh, rain pours down on the mountains, The CO2 dissolved in the rainwater mixes with the minerals that are exposed in the rocks of mountains. This forms new minerals, and then eventually those new minerals with the CO2 locked inside drain down the sides of the mountains and end up in the oceans. So every time you see a mountain range, you think, that is like, it's like a toilet for carbon dioxide. (laughs) It's just like the sky's toilet
1: is what that mountain is. Well, I don't know if that's the most romantic way to to think of the mountains, but... (laughs) I think it's beautiful. (laughs) Toilet of the... (laughs) Okay. But still, the the point is valid, yes. And then there are other
0: sinks as well.
1: Also, uh, CO2
0: gets dissolved directly into the ocean water itself. So it's it's coming into the ocean in multiple ways. It gets absorbed directly from the atmosphere into the ocean, and it drains from the, the weathering of mountains and rocks down to the oceans and ends up in the ocean floor, often in the form of limestone. But in both of these forms, the carbon dioxide that's locked up in the ocean eventually can get subducted, right? Because at these mm-hmm. places where the the plates meet, it gets sucked back down into the mantle. Now, this takes a really long time. The processes we 're talking about take place over over geologic time, not like on human civilizational lines. so if you 're getting your hopes up about the idea that, oh, you know Earth has a natural thermostat uh, we, we don 't have to worry about climate change unfortunately that 's not how this works the The natural mm-hmm. thermostat that 's established by plate tectonics has helped keep the Earth within a temperature range where it can maintain an atmosphere and liquid water and at least some life forms. But this temperature range that it maintains is, number one, it's huge compared to the range that will support stable human civilization as it currently exists. Like human civilizations and cities and agriculture and the ecosystems we depend on are all much more fragile than the baseline of just maintaining an atmosphere, liquid water, and some life. And then, of course, the other point is that this process takes a really long time. So even, even if it could uh, help maintain in a much narrower range that we depend on, uh, it takes a long it, – it takes, you know, beyond human civilization levels of time to really reach equilibrium. But to, to, just to sum up the process of how the thermostat actually works, uh, I'm going to quote directly from O'Neill. He says, quote, If the Earth gets too hot – high levels of rainfall and erosion start bringing CO2 levels down. If the Earth gets too cold and freezes over, the erosion mechanism stops, right? So it stops raining on the mountains and draining into the ocean. But volcanism, due to plate tectonics, continues pumping CO2 into the atmosphere, and the levels build up, eventually melting the ice caps. It was this mechanism that allowed Earth to recover from a global ice age in the Neoproterozoic about 600 million years Aaron
1: Yeah. So again, we're we're talking about uh, processes that um that are taking place at geologic scale and not a human lifetime scale. But then also on top of that, even if you were exceptionally long lived, you are essentially immortal. These are not pleasant um, uh, changes to go through, I would imagine. Like in either direction, we're dealing with, go with catastrophe here.
0: Oh, yeah. And these changes, again, what we're talking about is how the Earth's uh, plate tectonic thermostat, if, if this theory is correct, which it mm-hmm. seems like it probably is, how the plate tectonic thermostat uh, is able to maintain Earth as a habitable planet. So, like, it's still going to have liquid water. It's still going to have an atmosphere. That's a very low baseline. <laughs> you know, That during this time, there are going to be mass extinctions. There, You know, sea levels are going to be hugely rising and falling, huge – parts of continents get covered in ice and then the ice retreats so these are this is not like stuff that would be like oh it's cold outside today these are these are world changing uh variations they just don't change to the point that earth is no longer habitable like venus or mars does that make sense
1: yes still out of catastrophe comes life and speaking of that we're going to take a quick ad break but we'll be right back
0: (laughs) All right, we're back. All right, so uh, we've been talking about theories in geology about how volcanoes and plate tectonics might be important for making the earth habitable for life and maintaining its ability to host life over time. Uh, one of the things we were just talking about was the idea of plate tectonics as a natural thermostat regulator for temperature on earth that, that it, uh, that allows the earth to release and absorb greenhouse gases in a cyclical way that basically keeps the earth from turning into Venus or Mars or some other uninhabitable hell. Um, Now, there was another article I was reading that was uh, in Quanta by the science writer Rebecca Boyle from June 7th, 2018, that mentioned a number of other theories that have connected plate tectonics and volcanoes to various life-related plots. Processes on Earth, and uh, and I I found this all really interesting. So I just wanted to explore a few of the things that she gets into in this article. Uh, One of them is the idea that plate tectonics might possibly have been important for the origin of life itself. Now, this one's somewhat controversial because we don't know for sure when plate tectonics began on Earth. Uh, We we don't know how early it got started. There there are various theories about that, but uh, for example. Example: Craig O'Neill, the uh, author of the article I was just talking about before the break, uh, has been involved on research that posits that before the Earth had plate tectonics, it had a a period of what was what is called a stagnant lid state, where it didn't have plates sliding around. It had this sort of single hard shell floating on top of the mantle. Uh, but Boyle's article points to research about how the the subduction of plates on ocean floors actually creates conditions that are that are uh, friendly to various types of extreme deep ocean life that we think of as being similar to or possibly the direct uh, analogs of the earliest life on Earth. Uh, to quote one section, Boyle writes, quote, As the Pacific plate is dragged down into Earth's mantle, it warms up and releases water trapped within the rock. In a process called serpentinization, the water bubbles out of the plate and transforms the physical properties of the upper mantle. This transformation allows Methane and other compounds to percolate out of the mantle through hot springs on the otherwise frigid cold floor. And it's this type of chemical reaction that, uh, that on the ocean floor could possibly have given rise to the earliest chemical metabolism and jump started chemical evolution of what would become cells and life as we know it. We don't know for sure, but it seems like one of the plausible origin theories for life on Earth.
1: In other words, the sort of ancient chemistry labs that uh, are, are firing off uh, random concoctions uh, that uh, that then end up benefiting the emergence of life.
0: Right. Now, there's another thing Boyle's article mentions that uh, touches on an issue we've discussed on the show before, which is the Cambrian explosion. Apparently, plate tectonics have also been implicated as a possible cause of the Cambrian explosion. Uh, Now, a brief refresher on what's going on here. Remember, we've talked about this fascinating paleontological mystery before. Roughly 540 million years ago, there is a dramatic change in the fossil record. Before roughly 540 million years ago, in a period that we know as the Ediacaran, most of the life we have evidence of is very simple. It's soft-bodied, worm-like creatures, Sort of leaf shaped multicellular fronds, a lot of soft bodied organisms, many of which are not preserved very well. Um, and there is not, uh, th- there doesn't seem to be a lot of diversity of body forms taking shape rapidly. But then, over a period of time that is geologically really sudden, there's this proliferation of animals with lots of different body types that have hard body parts that are preserved very well in fossils. So we have good records of them. This is when you get the trilobites, uh, anomalocaris, hallucinogenia, opabinia, all of your favorite monsters of the ocean (laughs) primeval. This is the Cambrian explosion. And the question is, what explains this apparently sudden acceleration of evolution and diversification of life that happened about 540 million years ago? Now, there are a lot of competing theories. Some, I think some paleontologists say, well, maybe the rapidity of the Cambrian explosion is sort of overstated. Maybe there's some bias in the fossil record, but I think it's generally agreed that, yeah, a lot of new animal forms really do show up pretty fast. And so other theories have to do with like changes in the composition of the atmosphere. Uh, One that we've talked about on the show that was pretty interesting is that it was uh, a reaction to the evolution of hunting and active predation as a novel thing on planet Earth. There had not been hunting before. (laughs) And suddenly, as soon as organisms are hunting each other, there's just like this rapid race to find new ways that bodies can be. But uh, Boyle's article points to research from 2015 that actually links the Cambrian explosion to plate tectonic activity. So this is a paper by uh, Ross Large et al, published in Gondwana Research in 2015. And what's their theory? Well, simplified, it goes sort of like this. Plate tectonics smash continental plates together. So the plates are moving around and they smash together. And at the places where they smash together, it often raises up mountain ranges. Mm-hmm. And these mountain ranges at the borders of plates consist of exposed mineral bedrock that's heaved up into the sky. We talked about this a bit earlier.
1: Oh, yeah, now, we went into this a bit too in the, the gold episode where we talked about uh, looking for gold in the ocean. And we talked just very briefly about why one pans for gold in mountain streams.
0: Yes, yes, a very good point, yeah. Uh, so the rock that gets lifted up as it uh, smashes together at the edges of these plates, the mountains that get raised up can be hammered by the elements. It exposes the underlying minerals to, you know, the wind, but primarily the rain. And the rain drains chemical nutrients from the rocks down into the oceans. And this causes a proliferation of chemicals like phosphorus copper zinc selenium cobalt and stuff like that in the seas these nutrients in the ocean then allow high biological productivity the proliferation of life
1: intense competition and speciation so it's kind of like the some of the most important chemicals of life have been hidden by the gods uh, in the deep earth. And mountains, they're the Prometheus figure freeing those and releasing them into the ocean where they can become a part of life. Exactly, yes. Um,
0: And so Boyle writes, uh, quote, Maybe more surprisingly, Large and his colleagues also found that these elements were low in abundance during more recent periods, and that these periods coincided with mass extinctions. These nutrient-poor periods happened when phosphorus and trace elements were being consumed by the Earth faster than they could be replenished, Large Mm. said so in times where the uh, all of these very biologically useful elements like phosphorus and some of the other ones we mentioned are getting sucked back down into the mantle its subduction areas faster than they're getting released from the from the mountains and and other deep mineral sources, these are bad times for life on earth. suddenly, it's like life is not getting its vitamins. <laughs> Uh, Boyle's article also mentions several other interesting theories. I'm not going to go deep into detail about one is that plate tectonics could be responsible for atmospheric oxygen on Earth. There's basically a two step procedure here. Uh, First of all, plate tectonics create continents with rocks that don't react with oxygen in the atmosphere as easily as the iron-rich early rocks of Earth did. And then after that, uh, carbon dioxide gets released from rocks into the air and the ocean that feeds the growth of photosynthetic organisms like algae, which in turn produce oxygen as a waste product, sort of an oxygen two-step, which of course at the time was very bad for Earth because oxygen is a poison and it will kill you, but we evolved in the wake of that poison atmosphere and here we are breathing it. And then another interesting idea uh, that her article mentions is the work of Robert Stern, who is a geologist at the University of Texas, Dallas, who posits that because of plate tectonics, we have more opportunities for evolution on Earth than you might expect otherwise because the rearranging of continents and seas through plate tectonics drives selection effects and the evolution of new species. Uh, Stern says, quote, you need isolation and competition for evolution to really get going. If there is no real change in the land-sea area, there is no competitive drive in speciation. Uh, That's the plate tectonics pump. Once you get life, you can really make it evolve fast by breaking up continents and continental shelves and moving them to different latitudes and recombining them, which I don't know if I would ever thought about it quite like that before, but you do kind of see this effect throughout history as continents drift around, they smash into each other, they separate from each other. You see different life forms kind of going their own way.
1: Yeah. Coming into contact uh, with each other for the first time, um, you know, just changing the, uh, the the scenarios that are driving evolution. Um yeah, that's that's fascinating. I never really thought about it that way. But if you, you could look at a, a planet with plate tectonic, tectonics as being like the ideal laboratory for, um, for, for, the, for, for evolution to take place in, uh, it's, it's kind of like it has an automatic uh, shuffle mode in place.
0: <laughs> yeah, I like that. Plate tectonics puts biology on shuffle. That's yeah. so good
1: otherwise you're just going to listen to that one track over and over again or you're just going to listen to the first 3 you know you need to have it shuffled up every now and then so you'll 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 experience the album in a new order and suddenly you're going to find new favorite tracks
0: all right, I want to talk about one last thing before we finish up here, which is uh, an article I was reading about the use of volcanoes and plate tectonics as a proxy for
1: habitability when searching for exoplanets. Because mm, that makes sense based on everything we've said here. If, you know, in the same way that we would look for signs of water on another world as a potential, as a potential sign that uh, conditions could be right for life, then perhaps looking for volcanoes makes sense as well.
0: Yeah, so uh, I was reading about this in a a NASA press release that was covering a a paper published in Astrobiology in 2015 by Amit Misra et al. called uh, Transient Sulfate Aerosols is a Signature of Exoplanet Volcanism. I think these researchers were out of the University of Washington, and they're publishing a method for. Detecting volcanic activity on exoplanets to figure out which ones might be good candidates to host life for all the reasons we've been talking about. Now, this began with students trying to find ways to detect plate tectonics on exoplanets. Obviously, you can't resolve the surface of an exoplanet with a telescope or look at it long enough to know if it's got continents that are moving around. Um, But the lead author, uh, Amit Misra, said in this press release, quote, I came up with the idea of looking at explosive volcanic eruptions as a proxy or stand-in for plate tectonics. I'd done some work modeling aerosols produced by volcanic eruptions for other projects, so I started looking into how we might detect an eruption and what it would tell us. Now, this is specifically focusing on explosive volcanic eruptions that tend to happen at the edges of tectonic plates. Uh, Again, I mentioned this earlier, but if you look at a map of tectonic plates, you'll notice that the boundaries match up to lines of Volcanoes on the surface of the Earth. Now, what is it about explosive eruptions in particular? We, you know, we've all seen footage of volcanic eruptions that are not particularly explosive. They're basically uh, kind of gentle lava flows, relatively yeah. gentle. You know, it's still a planet, and even during more you know middle of the road volcanic eruptions, the gases and aerosols that get expelled uh, from the Earth often tend to fall back to the surface pretty fast, at least fast on a geological scale. But mm-hmm. during these really highly explosive eruptions, gases and, and particles shot up from the uh, volcano are often shot into the stratosphere where they can linger for months or years, and they affect what's called the transit-transmission spectra of the planet. This is something that we can actually detect with telescopes at, uh, at a distance of, you know, as far away as other stars and their planets are. So by looking at the frequency of light reflected by an exoplanet, it as it transits in front of its star, between us and its star, you might be able to detect whether there are transient sulfate aerosols from explosive eruptions in the stratosphere, which in turn would be a good indicator, though not a guarantee, of plate tectonics down on the surface. The authors of the study write, quote, We propose that the detection of this transient signal would strongly suggest an exoplanet volcanic eruption if potential false positives such as dust storms or bolide impacts can be ruled out. Furthermore, because scenarios exist in which O2 can form abiotically in the absence of volcanic activity, detection of transient aerosols that can be linked with volcanism, along with detection of O2, would be a more robust biosignature than O2 alone. Right, so this is, another, this is linking to another idea people have had that if you can look at an exoplanet and detect oxygen, free oxygen in its atmosphere, that might be a sign of life in the atmosphere, because, you know, oxygen Is often a byproduct of organisms like photosynthetic organisms on Earth. But, you know, O2 can be produced by other things. So they're saying if you find that and you find signs of volcanoes, this is a good sign that this is a living planet.
1: I mean, it sounds like a solid argument to me based on, on, on what we've seen here. And, it's, and the thing is, I mean, it's still vital information about the nature of a given world. So it's not like you'd be you know, you know, chasing after a, a, a wild hare here. This would be essential information either way. Exactly.
0: Now, on the other hand, we mentioned that volcanoes are not a sure sign of plate tectonics, and this brings me back to something uh, I wanted to talk about that was also from Craig O'Neill, uh, because uh, O'Neill was writing about uh, how you know because of the assumed association between plate tectonics and life, some astronomers and astrobiologists are interested in looking for exoplanets with the potential for aliens – and, uh, and they've tried to focus on places where plate tectonics seemed likely to exist. And one candidate uh, that O'Neill points out was long thought to be these planets called super-Earths. They're terrestrial hmm. or rocky planets like Earth, like Mars, like Venus, but even bigger than Earth. And O'Neill writes that it was once believed that the odds of finding plate tectonics on big planets like this was higher. But now it seems like that might not actually be true because computer simulation— simulations have shown that you can probably have very large rocky planets without plate tectonics and instead with a surface conforming to this thing i mentioned earlier called the stagnant lid model which sounds gross uh, basically <laughs> it's where the interior of the planet is hot it's cooling it's releasing its heat And the heat is released through volcanic eruptions, but the surface does not have moving plates. And so no recycling of water and CO2 to the interior like we have in the subduction on Earth. Uh, No formation of mountains or natural mineral sequestration like we have on Earth. It's just going to be kind of uh, a big rocky planet with a hot interior that has volcanoes, but the volcanoes just sort of poke up occasionally out of its solid spherical rocky shell. And uh, O'Neill and the co-authors of his his paper that this article was based on were were addressing the question of how is it exactly that planets evolve over time? And they came to the idea that planets might start hot and turbulent and then far down the road they end up cool and geologically inactive and that, quote – We found that the evolutionary track a planet takes depends not only on its size, but on how it starts. For example, two planets identical in every other way, but with different starting temperatures, may evolve down very different evolutionary paths. And so what they argue is that plate tectonics, like we have on Earth, might simply be a phase in the evolution of planets, sort of a lacuna Mm. between two eras of stagnant lids. And it's possible Earth was once a stagnant lid planet— with a single hard shell, and now we have plate tectonics, and maybe one day we will not have plate tectonics anymore.
1: Mm. so if, if this is the the model that uh, habitable worlds take you would you would end up having assuming they live long enough, some sort of highly evolved life form ruling over a stagnant lid earth <laughs> <laughs> that that 's possible though there
0: was another uh, report I was reading that that complicates all this because you know as I was saying, this is still not a fully settled question. I was reading a, a report from Penn State News about a couple of Penn State researchers, geoscientists there named uh, Bradford Foley and Andrew Smy, who argued that, no, in fact, their findings showed that you don't necessarily have to have plate tectonics to sustain life on a planet. Given certain conditions, you can just have volcanoes basically keeping the planet the, the, roughly the right kind of temperature. Now, that wouldn't invalidate all the stuff we've said about the role that plate tectonics have played in the evolution of life on Earth, but it's still basically just an unsettled question, it seems to me, whether or not plate tectonics are really necessary for the existence of life on a planet or not. By the way, one cool thing I came across – I didn't get super deep into this, but uh, it's also uh, hypotheses about what happened – to Earth's early stagnant lid, in order to turn Earth into a uh, into a, a planet with with subducting plates, plates moving around, sliding under each other, and one theory is that it was asteroid bombardment. So
1: ah, Earth that, may
0: that'll mix it up. Yeah, exactly. Earth may once have had this. This solid shell on the outside without moving plates, and then some kind of impact or series of impacts broke it all up and got things churning around. And ever since then, we've had uh, a crust in the form of moving plates instead of one solid plate.
1: Mm. And that that has a very kind of divine feel to it, right? Right. Like a, a stagnant world that is no longer advancing or creating anything new, and so now some force beyond them has to rain down destruction, so that uh, so that uh, like new possibilities can emerge uh, out of this shattered, uh, stagnant lid.
0: Yeah. And, and the one last thing I want to mention here is that uh, O'Neill points to one of my favorite objects in the solar system as an example of, a, of an object like a planet that can be geologically active and have volcanoes without having plate tectonics. And that example, of course, is Jupiter's moon Io, the yellow hell of Galilean sulfur. You know, this <laughs> was uh, one of my favorites when we did the episode about Jupiter's moons. And so Io is Jupiter's innermost major moon. It's very geological active, even more so than Earth. It's the most volcanic object in the solar system. And this is a result of tidal forces that act on the guts of Io. It's a gr- gravitational manhandling by Jupiter sloshes the guts of this moon around and, uh, and its heat uh, mostly escapes to the surface through what O'Neill calls heat pipes. These are volcanoes, not through the movement of tectonic
1: plates. So to come back to our, our God analogy here, in this case, the God that is Jupiter is, uh, is, is too involved in the, in, the, in, in the nature of the planet. It's like a, um, a micromanaging oppressor uh, as opposed to one that just periodically brings about destruction.
0: Yeah, exactly. Jupiter, it will never leave you alone. Uh, And I think what Io needs to do is to go down into (laughs) the void and get the Demogorgon to come up and and kill Jupiter like he does in, in, oh, what's that play? Prometheus Unbound. There you go. Uh, but anyway, so I don't know. I I found this really interesting. I don't think I had ever looked this deeply into how entangled the geology of Earth, uh, and specifically its its mineral geology, its rocks are, with the with the evolution of life on Earth. I think I'd always thought primarily about like temperature and liquid water
1: yeah or i'd I'd probably focus more on sort of everyday human level things like the fact that okay that you know the soil near a volcano is going to be uh, rich and good for growing things, or that uh, volcanic activity creates land that can eventually be um, uh, become habitable, that sort of thing mm-hmm. uh, but this is a much much deeper dive into the, like the the truly geologic uh, um level of the whole equation,
0: yeah. Uh, so anyway, yeah,
1: I think that does it for now. But uh, but I hope you've enjoyed this journey into the volcano. Absolutely. And of course, uh, as before, when we discussed volcanoes on the show, we want to hear from you about your experience with volcanoes, life near volcanoes, visiting volcanoes, uh, active and dormant. Um, how does this uh, affect your uh, interpretation of these uh, amazing sites? And if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, well, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, just make sure you rate, review, and subscribe if you can. These are uh, acts that really help the show out in the long run.
0: Before we wrap up, I've just got to say so I don't forget, we need to get some Mountains are the Toilets of the Atmosphere (laughs) t-shirts made.
1: Oh, I don't know if that, was, that would be a bestseller. <laughs> I don't know. Why not?
0: Worst t-shirt ever. <laughs> okay.
1: Uh, anyway, huge
0: thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, just to say hi or to suggest a topic for the future, whatever you want, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.